Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Other Web. Our guest today is Bob Fine. Bob is the editor-in-chief of the Social Media Monthly, the executive director at the IVRHA. He's a part-time professor at West Virginia University and at Champlain College. Bob, welcome to The Other Web. Well, Alex, thanks very much. Um, thanks for your your patience the last couple of weeks um, as I as I had to kind of move this around a little bit. Um, and uh, and I will I will so settle for being number two this time around, but number one next time. It's all right. I'm sure you will be with us many more times. So we're gonna I'm gonna interview you as we discussed, and you know this is an, an opportunity for um, actually both myself but also the audience to learn. Um, a bit about you, your background, uh, why you started the other web, what you're trying to accomplish. All right, um, sounds good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm gonna go way way back, and um, tell me a little bit about uh, where you were born, growing up, and your time before coming to the states. All right. So I was born in the Soviet Union. I moved to Israel when I was six. So I grew up in Israel all the way through college. After that, I lived in Japan for a year, building video cameras, essentially. And then I moved to the U.S. Okay. And 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 so what did you do once you got off the plane? What, what was your first job? Or And, and were, you, were you married or you had family at that point? No. So I, I was not married. I, I had a brother who was already in California. So I sort of arrived to a place where I already had some network of friends. But essentially... I got pigeonholed pretty early on into building things related to imaging, either you know, point and shoot cameras or computer vision or things like that. And so I started doing that back in Israel. I did it in Japan. I relocated to California and I kept doing it. In fact, I was building these things for 15 years, essentially. And only about last year, I had this crisis of conscience where I figured, I think the world doesn't need more cameras. What can I start doing that's a little bit more useful to the world? Is there something that happened in June last year that made you stop it altogether? It wasn't something that happened all at once. So I've been running around with this thought for a while that there is a disconnect between what I believe is good for the world and what I'm actually doing to make money. And it bothered me, but I guess I didn't have the courage to act on that. It was just building up inside me. And I think there was one specific conversation with my wife where she started questioning me on that and sort of prodding, and it kind of unraveled. And eventually, she's the one who said, if you believe that what is most important in the world right now is to clean up the information that people are consuming, why don't you actually work on it. You can afford to. And so that's the thing that moved me towards actually working on it. And it was gradual. At first, I still kept consulting in, in parallel. And I only stopped doing it this summer. So let, let me let me let me get this straight. So um, you have 20 years, odd years of experience in uh, embedded software development in the camera vision sector. Mm -hmm. you know, prob probably a leading engineer, top of your field. I'm guessing in the space. Uh, was there was there no? You didn't see any kind of opportunity to better the world with that existing skill set. I've tried exploring that, but 
I really don't think that the world needs more cameras. So you don't you don't feel that we have a need to record our our lives twenty four seven and to be able to play them back later. That's a good example of something I don't think we have a need for. But even if you talk about more specific things like, I don't know, security camera, you could say that it prevents crime. So there's a benefit to that. Still, I don't think that we can solve crime just by more cameras. And so I was looking at what can I work on that can actually solve what I think is probably the most pressing problem we're facing. And it has nothing to do with cameras. I think that the most pressing problem that we're facing is that we essentially can't agree on what reality is because everybody consumes junk and everybody consumes different junk. And so it almost doesn't matter what problem you care about. If you want to solve it, you probably have to communicate that solution to people. And you're going to have a hard time communicating because the person you're trying to talk to has junk in their head. So is there a is there a anecdotal story or is there something that you can uh, share that made you think that, that made you start thinking about this a lot more than before, or is this something you've been noodling on for 20 years? Yeah, I don't think it's an anecdotal story. It's really that I've been an information junkie my entire life. I always read a lot from everything, right? Books, news. I keep consuming more and more content and that's something I don't think I can help. So I've been observing how it evolves because I've been consuming so much of it all the time. And it has really been evolving towards becoming clickbait. Like the quality of things that that I see, even from the same outlet, keeps getting worse. And it is getting worse in a very particular way. Like It's not getting worse in the sense that now more foreign propaganda is trying to manipulate you. That has always been there to some extent, but we don't have more of it than we used to. We always have some small percentage of the content being fake on purpose. But you are getting more and more content that is just there to make you click on stuff, there to make you view an ad on a page that you otherwise would not have gone to. It seems like there's just an evolution with a single selective pressure of maximizing clicks and views. Do, do, you, do you think there was... A, a turning point that started us in that direction? Or do you think it was social media? Do you think it was something else? Well, I think the, ter the turning point is probably Google acquiring AdSense and essentially coming up with a model of pay-per-click. You could say maybe it was the invention of the banner in the late 90s, but I doubt it. I, I think the invention of the banner created a lot of junk in the form of ads on pages, but it didn't yet make the creator of the page change what they're putting there. Right, it was just the ad themselves were the junk. But I think sometime after 2002, 2003, you started seeing the content itself become different because it wanted people to see the ads on it. Right. And I think that is the kind of connection that a lot of people miss that it's not the ad itself that is the problem, as annoying as the ad might be. The problem happens when the person writing the article changes what he's writing because there will be ads on it. I, I think I think that's part of it. Can I can I give you a, a thought about where I think it it started? Um, sure. And I don't know. I I think it's more going back maybe to the mid '90s. But um, a number of years ago, I can't remember how long. Probably 15 plus. 
Um, I got to see a, uh, a lecture with um, Ted Koppel. Um, I don't know if you know, Ted Koppel he used to work for ABC News as uh, um, he did Nightline for many, many years. And he still does, still does occasional independent news stories for, uh, I think, 60 Minutes and and uh, uh, and CBS Morning Show. Um, but he said something that is that has stayed with me ever ever since. Um, and and this was kind of a time when I was kind of getting early in the into the publishing space and and media content. But he said, you know, when 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 the news departments within uh, network television became profit centers instead of just you know reporting the news and and doing it at a loss or or if they made money or not but without the intent of it being a money generator for for the network is when it when it when journalism you know took a completely different direction for the for the worse yeah, I think that that view is correct if you are only looking at that timeline. But if you actually look at the longer history of news, you're seeing these cycles repeat themselves, right? So newspapers in North America started off essentially as partisan advocacy, right? Uh, from one newspaper was founded basically for secession from Britain. Another one was for staying inside Britain, etc., then you had the transition to the daily newspaper and you could argue that's when clickbait was invented but at the time it was one clickbait article or one you know special special read all about it article that was just there to attract attention but everything else was journalism right and then you had the subscription model that kind of fixed journalism and perhaps created this golden era of ethical journalism that lasted a few decades Right. And then the Internet broke all of it. So I don't think it's accurate to just compare the short period of ethical journalism to Internet journalism and say, look, the whole problem is profit motive, because before that you had a profit motive and you had different problems. Right. So it's not that profit motive always causes junk. It's when the incentive is such that the way to make more profit is to generate more junk. That's when profit causes junk, but it could cause many different things depending on what the ecosystem is. Well, I guess where I mean, you, as you were talking, you're making me think about. I mean, R Rupert Murdoch made his made his fortune with uh, you know the I think the Daily Sun you know number of papers in in the UK where you know page three was the you know a, a famous famous wood you know woman in in you know you know scantily clad you know, uh, clothing. Um, so that was, that was its own clickbait, um, you know, to turn the page. Um, but I, and, and, you know, that generated, I guess, you know, that, that, that played into people's, I mean, men's most primitive motives, uh, you know, to buy a newspaper for page three, you know, initially instead of the news that they were be being given. Right. So obviously that model has always existed. And, and that is my point that, you could use that model and still package it with good content that one could argue playboy had good articles back in the day right so it's not that those I, things I, are... I only i only read it for the articles i i never read it so you're way ahead of me on that one but like it it's it happens that you get a lost leader packaged with something that is more profitable and you could argue also that that's what the news were in many of 
the old, uh, at least TV stations, right? Where the news were never a profitable department and wasn't supposed to be. But that was an aberration. I think as a as a society, or at least as companies affecting what the ecosystem is, we have to create an incentive to make the news profitable, right? But to make it also news. And I think it's doable. I think that you could really align the incentives here if you modify what pays. And one of the simple ways you can do that is by filtering bad things out. Because if a lot of people use a client that filters bad things out, there is less incentive for the creator of the content to create bad things. They don't want to create something that nobody will read because it's being filtered out. That's the simple binary selector. And then you could think of a non-binary selector where perhaps if we created, let's say, a data stream to add DSPs that allows advertisers to really see what is the quality of content that this ad will be posted on and to vary the payout based on that because they want to be associated with higher quality content. That might create, again, an incentive for news outlets to create higher quality content. Right now, the incentives are all about eyeballs, and there is essentially no penalty for doing the opposite. I'll give you a crazy example that I actually mentioned in our episode with Peter, where I was searching for protein powders recently, and I wanted to find some sort of a ranking that would tell me what the best brand is. And when you search best protein powder on Google, the top two results are from lifescience.com and from Forbes neither of which is supposed to have an opinion on protein powders as far as I'm concerned, right? But they became famous doing something else. They have high authority with Google. Now they're monetizing it by writing junk like rating protein powders, even though they are not qualified to do so. So I think we can change that. So I want to I want to kind of just go back to the the financial aspect of all this, because there, yeah, you know, there's a couple of things involved when we talk about profit or 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 for the greater good. So, is this is this about profit or is this is this about greed? And and I mean, from from my perspective, a little bit. And if you if we think about just let's talk about Facebook for a minute. And it, it seems well enough proven that that they've they've um, designed their algorithms to tap into you know the 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 poor emotions of people, you know, that, that rage generates, you know, greater, greater click-throughs and, and, uh, you know, uh, bad content or, or however you want to define it is, is, but a, is a better, better bottom line. And so these companies, whether it's Facebook or newspaper or, or, or a television network can still generate profit. It's just a matter and, and provide very good, news, but it's just a matter of how much profit do they need or want to generate? I think that that's a slightly odd way of looking at things, given that all of these companies that we're discussing are registered as C-corporations. And the basically, the law says that every officer who works for a C-corporation has a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value. It doesn't say to provide some profit. It doesn't say to provide reasonable profit. It says to maximize shareholder value. So you could argue that if any of those companies did anything other than what you just described, those officers would, would be personally liable to the shareholders for breaking their fiduciary duty. I think that's pushing that because I don't think it, there's, it's not about maximizing shareholder value at any cost. 
or at the detriment of society and children. Well, so what you're describing is the reason why we're converting to a public benefit corporation right now, so that you could actually say in the bylaws, we want to provide good value to the shareholders, but here are a few things that we think are more important, right? But the reality is, I don't blame any of these, any of the people who worked up for the, for these companies for doing what you just said, because that's what they were supposed to do, I think. I think the companies need to have registered differently to be able to do something different. I I, I think you're letting them off extremely easily, but we'll, we'll save that this, this, this discussion for another time. So so let's go back. So let's talk about OtherWeb and filtering out uh, junk news. And and I think maybe we had this discussion a little bit on our on our very first call with each other. But you know, junk, uh, bad content, good content um, is is very much in the eye of the beholder. And what makes what qualifies the other web to be the arbiter of what people are exposed to? So it's not, I think, that we are qualified to be the arbiter. It's that we are doing our best, and then we are being as transparent as possible with users and trying to open our models and show them exactly what we're doing. And hopefully, it matches people's intuition, right? So the way we define junk is generally by looking at specific elements that we consider are bad, building models uh, that can detect those elements, and then scoring an article based on essentially how many red flags it raised. So clickbait is one example, right, where we can define it as a headline that doesn't quite match the content of the article and is there primarily to attract attention, right? If you poll 10 people on the same article and you ask them, is this clickbait? Generally speaking, they will agree with each other. Like either all 10 will say yes or all 10 will say no. I think you, you might see some differences on some particular items that are borderline, but for the most part, I think we all agree on what a clickbait headline is. And so that was our approach. Train a model that emulates the way that people would rank an article on that particular axis. Um, we've defined about 20 of these axes. And then once we score each article on all 20 axes, we try to create an aggregate score using linear linear algebra. Now, are are you basing are you basing the models on on actual people surveys of them of yes. them? Yeah. So everything, almost everything we do is supervised. So essentially, it's either starting from academic data sets, or finding a creative way for us to hack together our own data sets, or actually paying people to annotate things for us. Okay. So basically, most of our models are a way to teach a machine to emulate a human and be almost as good. It we don't we're not like GBT where it's it's unsupervised and sort of consumes all the information in the world to figure something out. We don't have the resources. So we have to take a much more cost conscious approach of okay, we just found a data set where some academics went through a bunch of articles and marked some of them as specific propaganda techniques. Let's use that to teach a model to detect those propaganda techniques, right? And that's one example of a model that we have based on a QCRI data set of different propaganda types. So that's kind of what we've done. And is this an epistemologically defensible way to determine whether something is junk? 
Maybe. I'm not sure. But does it typically match people's intuition about what looks like junk? Yeah, pretty much. I haven't seen many people look at our scores and complete, completely disagree with them. So let, let's pretend for a second that I'm uh, you've never met me before. Uh, and my name is Joe Schmo. Um, and you want to convince me that I should download and use the other web. And I'm going to ask you why. The internet is full of junk. If you want to consume better content, here's one place that aggregates content from all over the web, has news, commentary, podcasts, research studies, and many other types of content in one place. It filters all the junk out. It gives you a lot of control that other platforms don't give you on how to customize your feed, which type of categories you want to see more of, which, one, which kind you want to see less of, which outlets do you want to include, which outlets do you want to exclude, et cetera. And at the end of the day, you can just be there, consume content, navigate it, and get your daily information fix. Would, would you say that other web today is more focused and useful for uh, consuming news or is it or would I use it in replacement of of Bing or Google if I'm trying to just find anything, whether it's a company or uh, or a shopping engine or what have you? So I think right now it still shows almost the uh, evolution that it went through. And that it started as a newsreader, then it had search capabilities added, then it had other types of content added, and then it had social features added to all of that. So it is still the best at the news, and it is the best in some scenarios in search, but not in most of them. I would say that the best way to use the search functionality in the other web is when you are reading some other type of content, like news or commentary, and you see a phrase that you want to learn more about, you can just highlight it, right click and search. You don't have to type, you don't have to open a new window. And we know the entire context of what you were reading. Therefore, we can give you better search results. And within the search results, we give you additional filtering capabilities that no other search engine will give you. Like you can disable any page with affiliate links in it, which is something that I really like because occasionally I would go and research some product and figure out which, again, protein powder I want to buy. The last thing I want to see is a page that just copy pasted the marketing material from five companies and gave me an affiliate link to Amazon for each one, because that's not useful. Those are not real reviews. It's not the real ranking. It's just there to make me click on any of the five they don't care which one. So we allow you to disable those kind of results. We allow you to disable anything hateful anything offensive, anything with more than six ads on a single page. Those are the type of controls I wish I had when I was using Google, but I don't. So other web is free to use today? Yes, it's free. And for now, it's also ad free, though. We may try to find sort of careful, unintrusive ways to monetize it using ads in the future. So what's the plan for 2023? There's multiple things. On the engineering side, we want to add more types of content and more social features so that, let's say, you can follow somebody else's feed if you like their taste and you don't want to try to experiment with your own feed until it tries to resemble somebody else's. 
we definitely want to increase the engagement within the platform so people can comment more and you see more, not just the original content that we scraped, but secondary content where people discuss it and share it with each other. In addition, I would really want us to try to use the tools that we have to evaluate content for other types of product that don't necessarily affect the end consumer directly, but can still benefit them. So that idea that I mentioned earlier that we can use our filters to feed it into an ad platform so that the advertisers can figure out whether content is good or not. That seems like a natural progression of where we might go. I would also want to see us use the existing suite of filters that we have to try to give feedback to people writing the content. Maybe it will essentially look like a Grammarly of sorts, right? Where I'm sure that a journalist or an editor would like to know whether the kind of thing that they're writing right now would pass our editorial review. Because if it doesn't, then it means anybody using a client that has these filters in is not going to see their article. So we really want to try to affect as many people as possible, both on the consumer side, on the producer side, on the intermediary, on the intermediary side, to try to nudge everyone into just producing better stuff and consuming better stuff. On the financial side, I think we are about to go to a crowdfunding campaign, uh, likely on WeFunder, because as great as venture capitalists are, for our type of product, I think it makes more sense to take small amounts of money from thousands of people who would then also be our community and help guide us and give direction to the company. And as I mentioned, we're also re-registering as a public benefit corporation because we want to legally obligate ourselves to put information quality above profit-making. Fantastic. Um, what's the biggest challenge you, you, you want or need to solve in the next two months? I think the biggest challenge is always traction and retention, no matter what it is that you're doing. That seems to be the thing on which products live or die. In our particular case, we have, you could say, almost a philosophical challenge where some of what we are removing from the information ecosystem is things that generate strong emotions, especially negative emotions. And when you make content less emotional, you also typically make it slightly less addictive or engaging to people, right? And so our concern is how do we make a platform where people come back every day and enjoy being there and really feel like they're as hooked as they were on Instagram or Twitter or wherever they spend their time before, but also all the content on the platform is high quality. It seems like a pretty hard circle to square. We are progressing pretty well so far, but we're definitely not quite there yet. It's pretty difficult to improve both of these things at the same time, as opposed to doing what most platforms do, which is just pick one or the other, right? Either you are academia.edu or you're TikTok. We don't want to be either one of these. We want to have some of the engagement of TikTok with the quality of academia.edu, essentially. But that's a challenge that is a work in progress on our side. Well, Alex, it's uh, it's been a 
a great conversation. I, I've I've learned quite a bit. I hope the audience has, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to this journey with you. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. This has been an episode of the Other Web. Bob decided to replace me as the interviewer today, as you guys noticed. So I hope it went well. Thank you so much, and talk to you all next time.